This is Shaka Wart Speak. Well, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Dang it, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the last few episodes, we just kind of rolled into it. I know, dude. It's messed up my whole, we like... We just had a conversation, and then one thing led to another, and we said, oh, oh hey, here, here we are. We're Shaka Wart Speak. Gareth Blackwell hates aesthetics. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. That's how we're starting today. <laughs> just so you know, everybody... I'm starting a vicious rumor that Gareth Blackwell does not like aesthetics. It's not true. So, but we want to find out um, how true we can make it because we like to overcome obstacles. <laughs> That's exactly what I want to do. Gareth wants to overcome that one. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna cut this part. You're really coming around. You're really coming around on aesthetics, Gareth. I'm getting there, man. <laughs> I'm getting there, man. I'm trying and trying and trying. You're right, and Gareth don't like aesthetics, but they do a podcast. Oh man, that's a. It's not even. Uh, He's an esthete. That's what I like to call him. <laughs> man. <coughs> okay, how are we doing this? We're do, we did it. This we is the start. It? Yeah, we started. We're just kidding. Gareth does not hate aesthetics. <laughs> I just don't know how to start the podcast sometimes, and um, so He's that's just, how we started it. We made it. Easiest ways mid conversation. Yeah, we got to make conversation. So here we are. We're stepping into the second part of our series on confidence. Yes. Um, in a couple couple of things that we had alluded to in the last episode uh, that we felt are worth considering is um, either notables going forward or some some part of, you know, just where do you get your confidence from as a maker, designer, an artist, right. um, broadly speaking, is uh, we had, help me out, Gareth, we had confidence, we had curiosity, mm-hmm. contentment, yep, and then... And then we talked about responsible making. Yeah, responsible like making. Means. Wasn't there a third in there? It was alliterated. It was. I like, think it was. It was confidence, curiosity, contentment. They all. Okay. Those were the three. That's that right. Kinda, okay. The Thanks. triad that came together. That's right. Yeah. So they don't. You know, they don't exist independently of each other. Yeah. You know, again, if you've listened to us for any period of time, you understand that we're looking at this in a holistic way, an ecosystem way. All of our vocabulary pushes towards yep. how these things connect, yep. how they intersect, how they work, and complement or against each other. But how these relationships actually happen. That's right. So, you know, as with um, a lot of things, when we got started talking about confidence, then it was like, oh, well, there's there's other things that go into it. There's a contentment in the mm-hmm. work and the process and the things yep. you're doing. And then there's a continued curiosity. So as we were talking, we kind of uh, we kind of put it together and summed it up in a few ways that I think kind of helps frame the conversation going forward today. Um, and we really have two words mm-hmm. that I think work well together. Mm-hmm. And we're going to use those as kind of the framework for the first part to unpack and then get into some of the stuff that comes off of them. And yeah. so those two words were ordinary and curious, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ordinary and curious. So, um, depending on what your thoughts or views are, one or maybe both of those words might rub you the wrong way. Uh, he might be intrigued by them. You might actually hate them. So, uh, what do we what do we mean by these things, Ryan? Ooh. I mean, why would we pick something? What do as you mean ordinary? by What do you mean by mean, Gareth? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you mean? I mean, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? Infinite regress into what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? Hey, how about can I? Okay, so all right, let's go for this. Okay. Let me let me pull a Mickey on you. Okay, my brain just had like a lightning rod moment. Do it. So I'm reading another book. Uh, Maybe I'll tell you about it. Maybe I won't. But um, me personally, or them, or them, anyone. I don't okay. know. I'm always secretive about what I read. But, um, I don't know why. I just yeah. I feel nervous about. You don't want anybody in. else to take the good books. Yeah, 
<laughs> don't read it. No, um, you don't want to be judged. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be judged. But okay, so I'm gonna butcher this, and I may have to come back to it. But but okay, let's say you have buckets, big buckets. Okay, one of those buckets, it's like those rain buckets. Okay, they catch, you know, so they funnel water and then they purpose it, right? Yeah. Okay, so one rain bucket is for experience experiences okay freedom experiences let's call it hedonism okay let's call it um uh progress and pleasure are assumed as markers for freedom Mm -hmm. and freedom is only obtained through experiences Mm -hmm. so let's pretend that that's one bucket is that okay. is that okay? So the, so got the a next bucket of hedonism, the next bucket is meaning. Okay, and then the next bucket is purpose, mm. or vice versa. So in the purpose bucket, it's dry. Yeah. In the meaning bucket, it's dry. But in the hedonism bucket, it's overflowing. Yeah, yeah. You with me? I'm with you. So <laughs> yeah, we, I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> Gareth is giving me the best <laughs> look right now. I wish y'all could see it. And his mustache is more glorious than ever. It's it's there. It's there. So, okay, so what what is being what what we feed each other mm-hmm. is almost becomes um it it sort of bypasses the mind. And it's making us anxious because we're um free falling in kinds of free uh perceived freedoms. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting is like um this would, you know, maybe strike folks differently before COVID-19, but because we have restrictions, we're realizing mm-hmm. that many of those freedoms, those experiences, right? So I'm trying to say that they're trying to make them synonymous and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do the job of some of the texts that I'm reading. So, you know, I'll footnote it later, I guess. But the way that those collapse as assumed facts or axioms, like self-evident truths for yeah. us. Um, are making us the kinds of people that are uh, heightened in our reactionary nature and uh, exceedingly demanding for more experience to satiate our already sort of bloated selves when it comes to endless pouring in, just Mm -hmm. consume, 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 Uh, fill, fill, fill. And so um, the anxiety comes because we can't, it's analysis paralysis, we can't, we're over um, blown with, you know, experiences and everyone has to be more extraordinary. Everyone has to be bigger. And um, it may be not every person in every single moment, but just at a, like a kind of a secular Western, you know, that's where, I mean, that's where we're at. Like yeah. it's more technology. It, it is, those, it is those things. And so it's interesting that when it comes to like, well, what's the point or the purpose? What does it mean? All of a sudden, uh, no one knows what to say. And what that does is it creates anxiety and, and leads us back to the first bucket where yeah. we just want to uh, uh, escape the problem of the first two by delving harder into the first one. So the problem of purpose and meaning, we're like, well, it's dry there. I can't get anything. And I'm kind of hooked on experiences. Like I need more experiences. So um, that, you know, what does it mean to say ordinary? Hmm. Right? Yeah. So also just to throw it out there too, then what I mean by reactionary is like, we're just kind of like, um, 
nobody wants to hear anything that could really land with, I mean, I'd say nobody. I mean, I, you know, of course there's people, I just, I tend to speak in, in this podcast, like in general terms, unless mm-hmm. we're really, really going to like nitpick this down. But yeah, generally speaking, folks that fall into this kind of state, which they're not, ne- we're not necessarily conscious of it. It's more of a larger diagnostic of where, you know, where, where, what, where we've landed. Yeah. Tend to become defensive and part of that reactionary defensiveness to fight against anyone starting to fill the meaning or purpose bucket up, it is is by doing that. It um, it means that maybe all the experiences you're having are not all equally valid. Hmm. But I'm overwhelmed by how full that is, and I cannot parse it out. So I feel threatened while also needing purpose and meaning. I'm threatened by anyone taking up the mantle of beginning to talk about it. It becomes a threat. So are you, you tracking with me? Is that? I'm tracking with you. Okay. So then what that does is, um, you start talking about ordinary making or ordinary approaches to confidently existing Mm -hmm. for the, the purposes of cultivating culture, the ecosystem, that kind of thing. And, uh, it violates that first bucket because um, it means that it feels like you're a, I mean, so let me go, let me just go backwards. One, one more point. Let's just say that possibly this is gonna be the most sort of funky thing I say that really could be offensive. And I, I just mean it as a statement like that. I just challenge people to consider it is we've gotten to a place where perhaps in our desire to allow everyone to have as many, experiences as as each of us does we don't want to deny anybody experiences because we wed experience to freedom right and that's a whole big discussion because we do that what we then do is we appeal to maybe some of the we allow the most emotionally immature individuals to be the um sort of the standard bearer of what is acceptable Mm. so what happens is everyone's constrained to the bare minimum standards. So we have high level expectations for what art should be. Let's just now let's that's broad speaking. I'm talking about anything politics. I mean, it's why our politics are so polarized. So, but now take that into just like making. And so, um, you make under the justification of experience, which brings about freedom and et cetera. And newness fits really well into the remnants of avant-gardism and you know, uh, you know, everything having to be original in this kind of, uh, particularized way. And it creates an impossible demand that artists feel the weight of. And so the dissatisfaction is really high. So you're really dissatisfied. And, um, also you can't really get into the purpose of the work or the meaning of the work because to do so will cause you to be differentiated from the masses. And to do that will cause you to be singled out by those that are on the lower level of the benchmark. So you got this extreme tension that I think we're paralyzed into. And what's, in, what's interesting then is with COVID-19 is kind of put, removed us from some of that mm-hmm. experience bucket. And it's like coming out of a fog where people are saying things that humans 100 years ago understood much better than we do, which is like seeing my neighbors. I mean, the amount of people in almost univocally talking about, I've slowed down, I'm talking to my neighbors. I'm, I just had two neighbors I've never talked to that are never around that were out saying like, I've been seeing neighbors and realizing that I've been going too fast and I don't really, 
You know, I don't know. I had a neighbor today that said that his uh, brakes in his van went out and he had been driving an hour and a half and they went out in front of his house. He goes, it's a miracle. I was like, it might be, you know, I was like, there might be more going on to this world that we live in than we realize, but we're so um, caught up in the freedom of, uh, or maybe the enslavement of experience that we have not been able to step back from the trough, if you will, and take a moment to breathe and realize that maybe we don't have to concede all of this stuff and we don't have to. And so um, it's interesting then to pull back because people are starting to kind of see that which they have deemed ordinary, which is really stuff that they've had to throw out because they can't risk losing the progressiveness of experience because that would, you know, so this is going to set up the framework for contentment and curiosity, right? So um, that risk feels too great for most folks. It's, it's just too, it's just existentially difficult for us, myself included. It's been difficult to just step back and actually sit on your porch or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Or talk to it, talk to someone yeah. walking down the street and actually know and be known stuff we've talked about. Like we're not. Um, so anyhow, so I, I didn't answer your question. No, I, I didn't think, answer your I question, but I, I'm hoping I set up a, uh, dialogical, fr- it just, yeah, it just something so. clicked. Uh, <laughs> when you said, when, once we went into our banter of what do you mean? What do you mean? I saw the picture in my mind. No, I think that's good. Cause, um, you know, if you think back a couple weeks ago when we had our, our live zoom podcast, um, one of the folks Which in the conversation, <clears throat> it was really good. Um, but one of the folks in the conversation was talking about you know, the same sort of thing. Um, and his, um, kind of conclusion was that uh, normal life, so to speak, you know, air quotes, normal life um, had pushed him to a place where he felt the need to just be a unit of production, Mm -hmm. right? He just needed to be churning stuff out, yep, just churning things out, which feeds into this exact thing you're talking about, right? Where it's like, oh, so I'll have students ask in a different way. They'll say, how many times a day do I need to post my stuff on Instagram or Tumblr or whatever? And it's like, wow, that, that feels like a really really aggressive question. Mm-hmm. Um, but a question that also begs several other questions. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, and it's like, well, what do you think that's going to do? Well, I have confidence that if I just put more stuff out there, more people will see it. Well, that doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, but, but on the flip side of that, one of the areas I have one of the hardest problems in my class, the students every semester in one of my classes, they always say this is the hardest thing and I still don't feel like I got it after I left the class, mm-hmm. is I ask the question of why the work matters. Mm-hmm. Who are you? What do you do? Mm-hmm. Third, why does it matter? Yeah. Purpose and meaning. Yeah. And they, they can't. They can't, can't answer right? it. Because they can tell you who they are and what they do. Yeah. About their interests and how they're what filling I like. up that bucket of yep. experiences, right? Right. Well, I learned how to do this, and I'm taking this class and doing one class in this and focusing on this for like five minutes and then this thing for another five minutes. But I'm not I'm not sure what it is I'm actually doing. Yeah. I'm I mean, not I, sure why, why people care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you, You're illustrating it perfectly, like with the buckets, because yeah. so when you're talking in the realm of experience, like I, I've called it you know, for several years now, experience hoarding. And I always imagine like, it's the same as, it's like when someone starts talking about their experiences, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it's like the way you saw that show where someone hoarders, where you enter into their home. And if you, if you're not seeing anything and you're listening to them talk, they're, they're talking in exquisite detail about all of the things. And so to hear it is one thing to see it is another to be there and to smell it and to have the full sensory experience is, is pretty shocking because the order of things, the meaning and the purpose behind it is obfuscated. It's it's, but I've got all this stuff. I've got the stuff though. I can tell you where it came from. 
well, what does it mean to you? What is the purpose of it? What's, what's the point? Does all of it need to be there? And the same is true with experiences and the fear of denying one an experience is the idea that you are then um, not exercising your first and foremost, which is freedom wedded to happiness or hedonism, intense pleasure. Um, And if that's your highest good, everything else will, will sort of be destroyed in some kind of way or will be less than what it could be as a result. If the highest good is that, so then you get into making art and maybe not all of us deal with this, but it's an, it's, um, you know, I heard, read someone say, call it like an ambient anxiety. Yeah. It's an ambient anxiety. It's fantastic, right? Like yeah, there's an ambient anxiety. And so if you try to exist in, uh, in, 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 uh, in contrast to the ambient anxiety, it creates a dissonance and you'll get sucked back into it and you'll, you know, you'll, um, you'll be on that, I guess on that train of, of, um, Hoarding experiences, seeking pleasure while being uh, excessively dissatisfied, and you won't know the purpose or the meaning mm-hmm. other than to gain more experience and, and, and to, to talk about it. Or this is why critiques suffer in academia because our experience cup is too full and our uh, thinking about meaning and purpose is, is completely empty. And so um, we need to dump out the experiences a little bit because we're also finding by the way through COVID-19 as a universal experience that, uh, not all those mean, not all those experiences matter equally, right? Especially when dealing with the most eminent questions and the most eminent realities. Like, um, you know, just to put it out there, like I, my uncle passed away this week. Oh, sorry um, about that, dude. Yeah. So like that is, you know, not to make it too dark, but you know, that's, that's been weighing on me. Um, uh, for a million reasons and my grandparents were hoarders. And so when I'm talking about this, I'm like, he lived in that home till he passed. And so I can't be home in California, but my family is small and I know they've got a lot of stuff to sort through because now he's, 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 uh, not there. And, uh, when you're faced with those things, it, it's like, you don't want to have to come to that. Yeah. to find this out. And what's interesting about this time period with this virus is it, I'm hoping it's like minimal death possible. Cause any, any, you know, any death, like, you know, losing my uncle's enough, like any death is rough, but also a lot of people are living in the tension of feeling guilty because they're actually finding some peace during this time. Yeah, that's true. I found, yeah. so, you know, I found people finding peace, which is really interesting. And I said, you know, we're always really dealing in this paradox. Um, and then you're finding people that are very anxious and anxiety, uh, in that kind of ambient anxiety way, um, is also a signal that I'm not getting hedonistic experiences to kind of draw me out of myself. And I'm drifting into the bucket of meaning and purpose. And I can't exist in that space because I don't have any resources and I don't want anybody to show me that the way I've been going about things has possibly been off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I had a friend this past week who said that um, one of the things that they've seen positive come out of this time um, with this pandemic is to um, to be reminded and understand again the importance of a nice walk in the evening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, and it seems like such a mundane, ordinary thing, right, to go yep. for a walk. Um, 
but it's but but it's not right. No, <clears throat> like there's a you know when you talk about like purpose and meaning, like you know when when we are holed up in our homes and we aren't able to really get out there, we're not able to socialize with folks in the same way. Um, being out of your home, you can't take it for granted anymore. Mm-mm. So when you're nope. out, it's it means something. It means something. It means something. <laughs> and then you got to ask the question, which is a later one's like, what's the purpose of all of this? I mean, that's a yeah. big question. Like that gets into big metaphysics and epistemology and it gets into like, you know, spiritualities and, and philosophies and science. I mean, you start to get at that stuff. And here's the thing. Uh, once you get there, it becomes an inconvenience to your highest good, which is experience yeah. and hedonism, right? That's what we've been living in and it doesn't deliver. So we've been given a big ch- reality check. What do we do with it? What if making art was as um, ordinary to your life as taking a walk should be? Yeah. Which is not to say not meaningful, right? Like it, it's meaningful, but it's should it should be more um, of a commonplace state of affairs that is part and parcel to the whole of an existence such that um, both maker and recipient or, you know, passerby don't see it as an oddity. Yeah. Okay. So how does that happen? Well, you have to be content enough in the making that your, your contentment doing it, um, registers a kind of obvious to our eye ordinariness that then becomes, um, transformational for the person who, who doesn't understand or doubt or whatever, as opposed to, I got to funnel everything through this really high, you know, bucket of, uh, experiences and hedonism and pleasure, um, that can never satisfy. I'm not anti-pleasure by the way, but, um, at that level and, um, it's crushing to someone who doesn't know. And it's crushing to the artist. So artists just, I got to keep working. I got to make something new. I got to, I got to get more likes. I got to, you know, and it's like, um, normally I'm, I'm a little unnerved by the person who's overly selling me a meal. They're <laughs> overly, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there's a nice, a sweet balance when someone is just like, you sit at the table and someone gives you a look like, this is so good. <laughs> and I get to have it again next week. And like, there's some balance between deeply resonated with, and not overreacting or underreacting, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I'm just thinking about artists, makers as faithfully present in a culture, um, uh, going to work every day, whatever that work is, the studio, their job, whatever it is, and letting people into their homes. Like if that becomes the baseline, oh, we're not, ta- like so many gaps are filled. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? But if you're discontent, which is a whole other discussion, um, you're not going to be able to sit in ordinary spaces and let and let people into the ordinary ordinary practice of your life. Um, you're going to be too anxious about it. You won't let them in. I mean, there's a lot of artists that won't let people into their studios. Mm-hmm. They're so afraid of being judged, and so they have to establish something that both fulfills them at the top end of their experiences and can uh, um, elude criticism from anybody who hasn't had as much experience as they had, mm-hmm. while being pleasurable. Yeah, it's too much. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, um, and then you throw in the need for funding and money and these kinds of things. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe if more people just had an ordinary relationship to art making, uh, artists making, um, there'd be, you know, it'd be like a million people giving $10 as opposed to one person giving a million dollars. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's like, and then, so then when someone gives a million dollars, it's 
resting on the bed of a million people giving $20. Like, mm-hmm. And that makes more sense holistically. That starts to work together to create more possibility because you have more uh, pervasive up and running understanding going on. You know, I don't know if I, I might be, you know, just too atop of the talk, I guess, but. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's um, <clears throat> with one of the classes I teach, um, it's a business practice for artist course. And um, one of the things that students always struggle with is when I tell them that, you know, if they're, if they have a plan to do this art and design stuff as a career, then they have to treat it like a job. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, but what if nobody's you know, commissioned a painting? What if I don't have a gallery show coming coming up? What if I don't have a client list? I was like, then I don't know that this is your job because mm-hmm. it sounds like you're unemployed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't do it to kind of like berate them or anything. I do it to really point to a place where it's like there should be an ordinariness about the daily practice of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So when a student comes to me and they ask something like, how do I, you know, how do I get these clients so I can do this work? I'm like, no, you should be doing work and trying to find clients that want it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it, we sometimes get that cart in front of yeah, the horse. Yeah, it's the cart before the horse thing. And yeah. so, um, and when we do that, it really does point to the fact that like, I want the experience of getting that client or the experience of the gallery show or the experience of the whatever, but I don't want the ordinariness of what it looks like to go into my studio at 10 in the morning with a cup of coffee and do my work and that be okay. But I think one thing that really works and uh, points a lot better um, to this as well, I don't know, maybe it's something that might be a little inflammatory to some, but I think if we talk about ordinariness um, in our work, what it also helps with is something that we all have a big problem with as makers, and that's ordinariness pushes against ideas of preciousness, mm-hmm. which I know is always hard, right? So... Um, we can talk about preciousness in terms of, you know, I, I can never finish a project, right? It's never totally done. Right. You know, it's, it's something I always come back to because it's too precious to ever let go. Yeah. Or, well, you I, know, I real fast, why, sell it. why does it, I mean, it's a great, a great point. So like, well, I wonder, you know, it makes me go like, well, why is it, how does it, how do, how do we get to the place where it's precious? And we've talked about identity and things in the past. So, um, in it, like in addition to those past talks, Preciousness comes probably from infrequency. Well, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what I was exactly what yeah. I was getting at. Ordinariness is totally about frequency. Right. In terms of the way I'm talking about yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Now. And like, you know, if I, if I make two paintings a year, well, those are going to be super precious to me. Yep. But if I'm making paintings every day mm-hmm. and because just like everything else, any other job you do, some of those days, the work is garbage. Yep. But it's all going somewhere. Yeah. Right? It's not yeah, in yeah. vain. I mean, today we had a, an artist that we showed a few shows back who posted something, and I read the caption, and I loved it because it said she took a photo of a painting, and uh, it said, you know, I'm not sure if it's there or way far off. Right. But underneath this are about 15 other paintings I've done Yeah. that I just couldn't live with. Yeah. But there's something I like about the fact that, that this is a literal and figurative building of yep. this painting. That's right. And I think that's kind yeah. of, you know, it goes against the oppression. This is like, yeah. it, we're, we're going somewhere, there's traje- trajectory, there's something that's happening. Uh, but if we're not letting ourselves really dive into a space that's ordinary, we can't gain any confidence in the work we do because we're just not doing that work enough yeah. in some ways. Yeah, yeah, And, okay, so that's, I think that's 100%. And um, because, like to your point, like about the, so, you know, when you're doing something all the time, it just becomes kind of like ho-hum a little bit. Yeah. And uh, 
so you have to sacrifice a little bit of that that experience bucket and let the arts come down a little bit and be a little bit more ho hum. Yeah. Not because they won't have great moments of ascendancy where where you're kind of in awe or you know, delighted or or just beyond yourself as far as like something you make or something that you don't lose that uh, by having valleys and you know oh, no. as opposed to only pr- pursuing plateaus yeah. as if as if you're plateauing to somewhere as if there's a destination in that sense there's not so um but uh shoot the frequency thing oh gosh i lost my train of thought man i had it there was a point i wanted to make well i think i mean you yeah, st- you're talking about these like these valleys and stuff, you know, if, if, again, if all we're doing is dumping into this bucket of hedonism, I'm never going to let myself have those spots of like uh, failure or those hiccups or those speed bumps. Yeah. I'm never going to get myself into a place that many of us learn in art school are actually really good spots of constraint and struggle that lead towards very productive ends. Yeah. Um, and then we're like, well, I don't know why I'm making garbage stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. well, all you're doing is pursuing the, the, the pleasure of right. what you're doing. You're not pursuing the work of what you're doing. Right. Okay, that's what it is. So in that rhythm, once okay, so here's the thing. Here's the big idea, I guess for me. Um art is a fact. Making art is a fact of human nature. Yeah. It's a fact. So we we are living in a post-skepticism world with all the effects of skepticism as a a premium on being an intellectual, and then that is the rite of passage for being an artist or a designer or whatever. Like that, maybe not always a designer, but depending on how philosophy sort of uh, affects pedagogy and mm-hmm. you know curriculum and all of those things. So, so, um, and we think sometimes by being critical and always being skeptical that. Um, well, my favorite thing to say is, well, are you skeptical of always being skeptical? Number one, As a, there's some point where you're like, you got to stop. Okay. So here's the thing I'm, I'm saying emphatically, the arts are a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Enough human history is, has proven that you have to assume that it has to become, um, not the thing you deal with. Yeah. If you want confidence. Confidence for what? Well, confidence to not wrestle with that question mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you can just step into the next, the next part of it. Now, here's why. You know, I had a friend who's um, using an anecdote. I love anecdotes. Um, wanted to get married. Parents did not approve of it. They didn't approve of a lot of decisions he was making. And, I, and he would come to me and talk. And I was like, the only reason why your parents keep telling you certain things is because they think they still have a door open to tell you certain things. Uh-huh. They will change as soon as you do. Like as soon as you're definitive and you go, no, this is, I'm going to school here. I'm doing art and I'm going to get married and I'm going to do these things. As soon as you do that, they will have to change in their relationship to you. But they don't have to because you're not definitive. So what had happened? You got married. Change, they change, it's all beautiful. Like as soon as he grounded himself in what his convictions were, then they had no they knew like they didn't have any power in those. That door wasn't open. Yeah. You know, it's like you keep pushing on it. Like my I had a cat who loved to push on doors if they are partly open. You know, but if the door is closed, he'd just let it go. At some point, his persistence would would wane out because he's like, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. People that naysay the arts are making are going to be less persistent if you are not wavering in that part. Now that wavering doesn't have to be you telling them off. It just has to be a quiet, quiet piece, a contentment. I'm content. So like I'm talking to my neighbor today and I came out of my studio and he doesn't really know much about art. And I mean, got paint on my clothes and 
I didn't say anything. I just, he just, all he saw was me with some pain. I said, yeah, I just got done working. That's all I said. That's all he needs to know. That's a lot. Uh-huh. He sees me as a sane person in my right mind as a good neighbor, consoling him over the fact that his brakes almost went out. And he knows he has heard what I do. Like, you know, in small, small, but it's, it's accumulating a picture that also relates to the fact that I mow my lawn. I play with my kids. I do all this other stuff. I teach at VCU. I drive a Honda pilot. <laughs> like I know I'm just, you know, probably not making myself. I'm sounding very, very vanilla, but I mean, you sound ordinary, ordinary. I, so it's a fact of your life. Yeah. So the differentiated part is not violated by the ordinary stasis. And it's actually charitable to, to folks because these are natural rhythmic uh, entry points. When someone wants to step in, I'm hospitable to them stepping in. Now, when someone wants to step in, you know, and get really nitty gritty on whatever, as much as I can, I'm ready to get into those conversations. But let's be honest, most people aren't there because they don't want to be there. And so there's high moments and there's valleys. Both are really important. But as makers, I think we can lose confidence by only pursuing the high moments and neglecting our ordinary approach, our ordinary pathways where we don't embellish and hyperbolize, but you know, your garage doors open and people see your paintings in there and they're like, Oh my gosh. So she paints, what are those? You know, why do you do that? Um, I love it. And I, you know, I, I think this, this and this, and, and they see that repeatedly, you know, year in, year out, that's going to, that's, that's renewing. It transforms, it changes. And so, um, and that becomes a helpful baseline when it's time to rally a community to get behind arts initiatives because they've been in contact with real people who are sound of mind, content, bringing value and experience to the table, but not in such a demanding way that it only fills the hedonist bucket, but it actually starts to address the meaning and purpose bucket. That's a powerful opportunity that is there. It's a vacuum that is left open that artists can step into. We should be stepping into that. That's what we're doing with this podcast in our own small little way. And then with our, you know, art space, another small little way. And then in our teaching practice, I mean, if you start to map out all the things you and I do, like in the rest of the people on our team, like we kind of composite a whole that we're hoping to grow, um, that is welcoming and, uh, desiring more people that are rigorous. Cause by the way, hard work is not, uh, opposed to being ordinary. Uh, in fact, they tend to kind of go hand in hand. Um, when you think yeah, about like blue collar workers and things like say, that, the hardest work is usually the stuff we look at as the most ordinary. That's right. But hilariously enough, we're finding a lot of the workers that people take for granted. Like uh, my heart is very, very um, moved when I see people at Target and um, trash folks doing maintenance and trash, mm-hmm. like the trash men that come. I mean, I always have always been this way. And so this is not like a new phenomenon for me personally, but I'm ever more moved by that because uh, these are I'm seeing expressions of what I would call real courage from people. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, there's a paradigm shift happening and, an uh, an opportunity, uh, uh, there's a leadership vacuum and an opportunity for ordinary citizens to, uh, step forward in beautiful ways. And, um, so, so where does your confidence come from? You know, well, we, we think we would argue, I guess, like when we we've talked is that it comes from human relationships and, uh, the ordinary practice of making, uh, um, I, I'm watching the Michael Jordan documentary. He played harder in practice than he did in games. Uh-huh. 
so that games were just second nature to them. Yeah. And uh, no movement was new. It looked new to other people, but for him it was utterly familiar. It was utterly ordinary. He was doing extraordinary things that for him were quite ordinary due to his practice. So there is to say, too, as there's a sense where as you get stronger and more uh, impactful in your studio practice, whatever that is, um, it's still going to feel ordinary to you. Now, it may look extraordinary to somebody else. That's that's the rub. That's the cool. That's kind of the cool part is, you know, uh, a band plays a song a million times. People hear it and their life has changed, but they've played that song a million times. Yeah, we get that in other spheres. We lack that when it comes to making with our hands. Um, no, that's uh, true. Um, my mom's a phenomenal cook. She makes amazing food. Um, and I grew up very much like with her in the home. Uh, like I knew that if she was standing there by the stove, like it was going to be good. Um, and so she was very much a make everything from scratch, you know, kind of old school. Um, and so growing up, that was just what was Mm -hmm. her using her hands to make food. She fed her family. She's like a food DJ. Yeah. Um, and then I have this, this memory of going to a friend's house. Um, and so my mom has this amazing, like passed down from generations, uh, spaghetti recipe and it's all from scratch. It's by hand. None of the measurements are actual measurements. It's kind of eyeballed this and this and this. Um, so I go to a friend's house, uh, for the weekend and he's like, Hey, we're having spaghetti tonight. I was like, Oh my God, I love spaghetti. It's so great. Yes. And then they just like dump out some ragu into a pot. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. (laughs) Um, and then like, that's it. This just gets warmed up and dumped on some noodles and yeah, it's still spaghetti. Right. But, But what had happened is this beautiful, amazing thing was so ordinary to me mm-hmm. of my mom like making food in this way. It had been such an active part of every day of my life for her to do this in such a beautiful way with her own uh, skill and ability and care. Uh-huh. It had been such an ordinary thing that once I saw like the normal thing, I was kind of appalled. <laughs> And this is this is kind of the thing I can go back to hearing you talk is kind of the way that I envision a world where people stop having to ask whether or not what they do as artists and designers is valid. Yeah. If we have that space, it's a lot like that where yep. everybody's used to the homemade spaghetti sauce. Yeah. And then if somebody goes, hey, here's a can of ragu, you're just like, I mean, thanks, but shouldn't yeah. we be doing something better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, so it allows you to situate that. Like, let's say that's the best someone has to offer Right, like growing up poor. Or something no problem. Like that. You yeah, and I yeah. both grew up poor, so you're Go on the one it. hand, you're like you can you can contextualize it, but it doesn't it, it isn't confused for the other, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. Um, so then you can be like, um, yeah. So then you can be like, uh, yeah, I know, I know better. Yeah. And there are places where that's sort of the stand the norm. Well, I mean, that's the yeah, standard. I, I've I've talked to people before in different parts of the country. That have said things like, "Oh yeah, we uh we love art. We we bought several pieces from this store over here." And yeah. Like, Whoa, oh, that's yeah. not. I wouldn't. I think we got our terms mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, going to going to grab a, you know, five that one of a five thousand print run from someplace like Kirkland's. Yeah. And hanging it over the couch. Yeah. I don't know. That's I don't know. That's what I mean. Yeah. By this. Uh, yeah, I would definitely say like you know just like a, a blanket imperative, everybody should just own something someone's made. 
Yes. Like I'd like to talk about that at some point. Like, you know, um, just, uh, you know, something along like just something along the lines of, of things that are made from the hand, like just that interplay, yeah. the hand and made handmade. Like, I think there's uh, a lot to kind of tease out in the value of that and, yeah. and kind of like elucidating how we understand that. Um, to, to better place the things that are not made by the hand. Cause I don't discount that. It's just to say that as we go forward, you want to preserve, there's things you want to preserve, you know, right. Um, and, uh, at the expense of the other, but the, you know, the, the contentment of, um, ordinary making doesn't mean that it's your work stays flat or stagnant. It, it's no. to say that's cultivative over time. It accounts for rhythms and it, it's not, um, turned into a big to do. Um, because most people don't want to be convenienced by big to do's in their, in their ordinary days. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a healthy cultural kind of, uh, stasis that mitigates the ambient anxiety. Mm -hmm. The other stokes the ambient anxiety and then you get, it stokes dissatisfaction and pressurizes every conversation, pressurizes every studio visit, pressurizes every word someone says, and nobody can live up to that. In fact, most people are afraid to speak, so then you get no conversation. Yeah. You get no discussion. You get no meaning, no purpose. And so um, we can't even get into a discussion about those kinds of things because they're too detrimental. Uh, they're too costly. We're already weighted down by a thick fog of anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. um, so our other point then is, in this kind of um, conversation is that when this is a healthy baseline, um, curiosity becomes less costly. Yeah, you got space for it. You got space for it and you got mindset for it. Mm -hmm. And so you can experiment and be really curious without losing that which you have deemed precious by living over in the over-hedonistic bucket mm -hmm. of every moment must be better than the last. Everything has to be. You can never afford to be too curious because you need to bank on what is going to give you the most assurance yeah. of an outcome. And so uh, in this ordinary baseline, you have eyes to see, which is what people are experiencing right now. Like people are like, I noticed the birds today. I've had more people say, yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm connecting with nature or something like, mm -hmm. and it's like, yeah, that's because we're slowed down. We're not chasing. Um, ex the irony is we're not chasing um, pseudo experiences mm -hmm. And it, we're always experiencing, right? Yeah. So, so there's, there's, the, there's the trick. You're always experiencing, but you've put a premium on kinds of experiences that mm -hmm. you think are progressing you into greater amounts of freedom. All the while, you can open your window or step outside of your room, and I hear birds singing. I live in the city. Like I, hear, I still hear birds. Yeah. I still see insects. I still am alive. I'm still observant. And your eyes can see, your ears can take in, you can give voice to the experiences you're having in that sense and or make meaning from it. And I'm not saying go make naturalistic landscape paintings, although I do like those. Yeah. Um, that's not what I do. Um, but uh, it's scaling you down. It's humbling. And in being humbled, you kind of have to become curious because you don't know it all. It doesn't matter how many experiences you've had. Yeah. But when you're high on experience and then strung out on displeasure, so you're like, I got to get a fix. I mean, anybody who's ever, I've had drug addiction in my family. Anybody who's ever seen someone strung out on drugs looking to get the next fix, single-minded. So their field of vision is too small. They're not curious. They got no time. Uh -huh. I got no time for that. I got to get high. I got to get high. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Like, I can't sit down with you right now. I'm, I'm itching because I got to get to it. Yeah. That's our culture. So now you got 
withdraw and you got folks, you know, withdrawn off experiences and uh, we're all having different responses, you know, and um, bearing with each other, encouraging each other like you see it through a real difficult time. And um, what a great, I, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, it's not a great thing that's happened. I mean, it's the terrifying consequences to the economy and jobs. I mean, I'm, everybody's nervous. You and I are nervous. We're all nervous. Yeah. I'm, I, all I do is sit in anxious meetings where, where everyone's like worried about what's going to happen. And a lot of us could lose a lot of stuff, right? And, and have, uh, even this week, like I said, even this week for me. Um, but that in that paradoxical way, though, there is something that's going to come out of this. And I think for a moment, people will come out of this uh, collectively better uh, in their relationship to each other. And um, I hope sober enough to talk about how do we get that purpose and meaning bucket filled up? What's the point of what I do? Yeah. What actually grounds it and gives it purpose? What um, the two categories I was thinking about before we started was that there's those that are f- so you're content when you're full and or you're you're filled if you will and the filling spills over so you want to be the kind of being that's uh, filled to spilling over so that you're giving to others mm-hmm. rather than just consuming um, consuming only I think makes it harder to make. Yeah. You know, we were just a consumer. So then you think about your work as feeding you more than feeding others. You know, it's like making endless pizzas for yourself. Yeah. At some point you got to sit down and serve a pizza to somebody else. Like, so if you're yeah. just making work for yourself, like God bless you. I, I don't fully judge that, but I am saying like the fulfillment you're looking for is found in the sharing of that with others more yeah. than it is merely only doing it for yourself. And, and I think we can get constrained to that and find ourselves discontent. Oh, easily. Yeah. The, um, this week, one of the things that I had the pleasure of doing was, um, having a, a group critique with, um, a group of graduating MFA students in interior design. Ooh. Um, and I was critiquing their thesis books. Um, they had some questions about things. Um, but it was, uh, it was great because, you know, I, I, we, we've talked a lot about critique and yeah. we hear a lot from our students about discontentment critique. Um, and what you're saying is kind of uh, hitting me in a certain way because um, the idea of, of, of consuming versus creating, um, you know, or uh, in that meeting, um, most people would assume that what I was there to do was look at their PDFs and say, I would do this. I would do that. I would do this. I would change this. I would change that. Um, and there were some things like that, but they were based more off of like how somebody would actually like digest the book. Um, some things were moving against usability and readability and things Mm -hmm. like that. But about halfway through, I was like, Hey, I'm just going to share my screen and I'm just going to pop in to InDesign and let's just roll through like a, a short little workshop on like how to do these sort of things and just bust it out and just do it. Um, most people would not say, Oh, uh, like a, like a functional workshop is not a part of a critique. Yep. You know? And I was like, but, but I would say that that is like, why not though? Right. Because if I'm making statements about how people should change what they do, but I'm not willing to show you how to do those things or give you the tools to do it. How are you going to actually take that and run with it? Yeah. You know, it's, um, but it actually turned out to be, I think, one of the best critiques I've been a part of 
Because by the end, it really was a conversation among half a dozen people. And it was everybody saying, well, what about this? What about this? The ideas were being generated. Yeah, curiosity was things. Yep. And it was just like, oh, this is, this is fantastic. Yep. And I think the turning point really was when I said, hey, let me give you all something back instead of just trying to dump some commands on you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But actually well, share with you. And that's the thing, too, is like in, in critiques, critiques can um, – I, I don't think so like you can there's there's like shades to this, you know, so there's degrees or levels or qualitative ranges to things. So like when you're talking about, say, um, a critique, the words you speak can be true, meaningful and on target. But in the posture of the people, both speaking and in the recipient, um, the way that they're operating can mean that they miss the fullness of what's exchanged because it's colored by, you know, this kind of a uh, need to consume. So, so, uh, from the critiquer, the need to consume, uh, power and, um, you know, through the exercising of authority and, uh, which I'm not anti-authority or power. It's just to say that that can become a temptation that a person needs the approval of the other folks in the room in order to feel, some kind of way to be filled up. And so the words they speak become a means to getting that. Mm. And then the students need that person speaking to hold to a certain level of prestige in order to feel or be filled up with um, some kind of validation or approval, right? And so the everything on the surface is like, great, but at the heart level, something is amiss. And what it can do is it can turn um, the moments of freedom um, generous, you know, situations kind of like what you're describing, uh, into closed doors because the you will you will end up. We've talked about this before, but you will fetishize and or aestheticize the the uh, the words that are spoken beyond uh, what their real impact and meaning is. Absolutely, and so so yeah. be, so hence everyone becomes they're sort of getting high off of the conversation not actually being changed or directed through the conversation as much as they're being, they're getting high off of it. Mm. It becomes an experience. It, it jumps into those auto filters and the purpose and the meaning is eviscerated. Mm -hmm. At, so, I mean, you can have three different conversations depending on where people are at in their posture. You can, it can be verbatim the same talk, but depending on the folks in the room and their orientation towards these things, it can have a very different impact. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. um, a richness, a fullness. And when you're not in that utter, con you know, sort of consumeristic space, um, you will be able to better than see out of. So when you're hung, when you're satiated, you don't you don't look to get filled the same way. So uh, when you're not looking to get filled the same way, you can see opportunity that otherwise isn't there. Yeah. Because you're blinded by my need to get filled. So then the conversations open up and you can just be like, Hey, let me just show you some stuff. Yeah. Um, which means at that point you're willing to sacrifice the apex of whatever verbiage you can spit forward to obtain to whatever level of prestige in that moment that gets everybody high. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's real subtle, but it's major. It's nuanced. It's subtle, but it's major. And I mean, I think this is a cultural phenomenon for many people, like especially uh, on the high end of progressing. When we think about progress is, is – um, unbridled freedom um unbridled freedom unbridled experience and and then it's like you have to ask the question like why is that pro progress 
Yeah. Also, the thing with, uh, you know, if we're talking about progress, the problem is if you're doing progress well, um, you're already at like the end point of it. That's right. Now. Um, which, which already starts to destroy curiosity, right? So if I'm there, why do I care about whatever the hell's out there otherwise? hundred percent. I don't, I don't need to be concerned with it. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to look for it. So if I'm, uh, if I'm the, if I'm the best, uh, artist or designer I can be, I don't need to know anything else. Yep. I'm fine where I am. Yep. And, and it's funny cause if you describe somebody like that to anybody, you're like, well, what does this person sound like? Well, they kind of sound like a prick. Yep. Well, yeah. I've, I've been there so many times. Right. I mean, and I say this not as a finger pointing anybody else, but strictly as me. Like, um, I've been places where I'm like, I got this. I'm yeah. at this place. I don't yeah, need yeah, to yeah. look at these other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can, I can have some intellectual or artistic snobbery going on. Yeah. But always, when you start looking in other spots, when some of that curiosity prevails and you're like, well, what is this? Mm-hmm. Then you, these, these doors were opened up into brand new rooms that are giant that you can't see all the edges of. That's right. And you're like, oh, whoa. What that room feels bigger than the one I'm in right now. Yep. So, um, I'll ask students uh, during semesters. I'm like, "When did you lose your curiosity?" And they're like, "Oh, I still got it." I'm like, "Oh, really? Yeah. What? What? Like, what's the last thing you were curious about?" I'm like, uh, I don't. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm curious about your curiosity right now. That's exactly <laughs> How right. How did you lose it? Yeah. It's like, you know, I was like, I was curious of at least five things about you when you walked in today. Yeah. Where'd you get that shirt? Yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, too, man. How how tight? I I I love that question because now I'm gonna I think I'm gonna ask my students. I think it's a do it very very provocative question, and then it makes (laughs) me think the next question, which is okay. um, When was the last time you were curious about things that you knew could get you pleasure? Because the chances are those things clickbait, like whatever. Like you're like, yeah, I was curious about that person or those things or that drug or that. I'm not I'm not downplaying like. Sex and drugs. I'm just, you know, probably gonna have a glass of wine tonight. But, um, but what I'm saying is like the the kind of uh, close to home curiosity that has a certain level of assurance of outcome yep. that is it deeply embedded into um, the hedonistic kind of like deep, um, deep pleasure, right? Yeah. So like a lot of folks can say like I'm curious, right? But towards the things that you know for sure yeah, will I mean, bring about a physiological hedonistic curiosity simple when it's simple. That's right. right. When the outcome is known. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, so you just, you just yeah. completely watered down curiosity mm-hmm. with that. But like, um, one, I think one of my favorite examples is, uh, the writer, Michael Pollan, uh, who wrote, uh, omnivores dilemma mm-hmm. and some things like that. Um, so he's been a writer for a long time and, uh, he had this property with some woods behind him and he was like, you know, I want to write, I want to build a, a little writer's retreat shed sort of thing in the yep. property back there where I can go and just do my writing. Um, and he was like, I can, he was successful. He could just pay somebody to do it. But he thought, what would it be like? I wonder what it's like to build something. Mm-hmm. Cause I've just been, a, a, I've been building things with words, but I've never built mm-hmm. them with my hands. And so he ended up having an entire book written about his process mm. of answering that question. Right where he went and actually built it. And he found out that like, oh, it's actually really hard. Yep. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's real hard. Actually, it's, it's super, uh, super hard, especially. I'm feeling convicted right now because I'm like, yeah, I'm not that curious. <laughs> I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you know, I, I don't use these tools. I don't know how to use them. So yep. his curiosity about what would it be like to build something turned into, well, now how do I use this tool? Yeah. And why are these materials Purpose good? and meaning. And where's this stuff come from? And yep. uh, 
does this have to be very strong? And can this just be aesthetic or does it have to be functional? Yep. And what about this and this and this? And a whole book comes out of it. A yep. whole book comes out of one curious question. Yeah, that's great. Um, and it's and it's amazing because most of us we throw aside curiosity. And that's we, right. I mean, and, and we ask questions, but out of skepticism, which is really to say, I don't really expect an answer. What do you I'm, mean by that? Yeah, Brian? that's right. <laughs> How can we know that? How can we know that we should do an episode where we just kick over? We just throw each other. Like we each take 40 minutes mm. and we put ourselves in the shoes of the questions that we've been thrown. Oh. Like, you, you know, like in that tone, you're giving me like, Cold sweats, right? Yeah. Now. Oh man, I love that stuff. Because uh, I'm ready to roll. Yeah. It just, it just, I'm getting like PTSD of like, uh, like grad school <laughs> committee meetings. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Yeah, that gives me PTSD too. Yeah, uh, no, no. I was thinking about students. <laughs> no, like, oh, I, please ask that. Please ask me that question. Do you want to ask that right now? Are you serious? Let's do it. Do you want? Do you want to talk about it? I, that's my first response. Do you really want to talk about that? And then the people are like, uh, I don't, I don't. Do I, I want to talk? I about don't know it? that I do anymore. Actually, no. That's um. Uh, that's good. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, like curiosity is, is that itch you just can't scratch, right? It's yes. not, it's not the itch that you, you scratch and it goes away. Um, you know, cause I, I really feel like, you know, curiosity is a, is like a character trait almost, right? You know, something right. doesn't change. So, um, you know, it's, when we talk about curiosity, it's always good to have these, these fun little I don't know, kind of games to spur students on and yep. try to get them to like get out of themselves a little bit. Yep. And then you turn it around on me, say things like, well, why do we have to do something to get you out of yourself so you could be curious? Cause I right. thought you told me before you were curious. Right. But we had to do something to get you outside of yourself. Right. Um, well, it's funny, man, like getting your, well, there's so many layers. So there's getting the existential practice of getting outside of yourself is a leaning into experiences, but it mm -hmm. accounts for a way that we've been narrowed to certain We narrowed to assurances, which is a very real concern. And I think, you know, so I, I, I feel like there's a discussion there. And we, I think, I feel like we've interlaced many talks on some of what that is, but, um, so, you know, I guess I'm sorry. I'm blanking here a little bit. Not I'm not blanking, but I'm I'm thinking about um, there's new experience, which is like a bodily thing, mm -hmm. and then you obtain knowledge, and then the next step though is, well, what does it mean, for what purpose? Mm -hmm. And th the problem with that discussion, I guess, which I don't think you and I necessarily have that problem all the time, but um, but it is always a problem for everyone. Is you're you're the first assumption is that the first deeply held conviction is pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And so pursuit of happiness um, in the way that we tend to think about it has no right or wrong. So we have lived out the logical ends of that assumption and people are screaming right and wrong all the time. So no purpose, no meaning closes in on getting outside of yourself. Cause what's the point? Unless there is some right and wrong decisions unless there are some, you know, what if there is some epistemic uh, rightnesses, some, some ways of knowing things that actually are right, which is, so if you're listening, you should be like, well, based on what? So exactly. we, norm we don't normally say based on what we say says who. Right. 
So, so I mean, we don't say based on what we say says who, and then we think we're done. And, and I'd love to have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I would love to, a lot of times you need the tension of someone to really have conviction to go says who, but we, you know, but what we should be thinking based on what, because we, we talk about the sciences, we talk about a lot of ways of knowing, uh, that ground experiences and make them meaningful but also make some not meaningful. Mm-hmm. We all agree there are certain things we should not be doing to each other. And the meaning is detrimental and dehumanizing. It isn't to humanize, it's to dehumanize. Mm-hmm. So it has purpose and meaning in the negative. Um, and we understand that. But in our general kind of casual state, um, we're overrun by the one category just to, keep, to beat a dead horse. And so it, it, even when we step out to, to have an ordinary or to have a new experience to get outside of ourselves, based on curiosity, um, I think the point we're probably driving home is like to really get that to, to enlarge a person, to humanize them fuller, you have to be able to then go, because of this new experience, that one is, is not valid. Yeah. And here's why. I can think about it, I can speak about it, and I can live with you disagreeing with me. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll be wrong again later, but we don't do that though. Yeah. Nobody wants to stand... I mean. The, the sort of differentiated person who is, isn't living uh, in um, atomistic individualism. That's uh-huh. um, different than what I mean by like, but the person who's truly just existing in the, in the, in the distinctness of themselves and can be uh, ordinarily and reasonably disagreeable with the mob or consensus. Um, that's kind of what the artist should be. Uh-huh. Should be a good crystallized example of that, yeah. and not arbitrarily, not atomistic, atomistic individualism, but uh, just um, yes, a, a both and. I, I'm, I'm like you and not like you, mm-hmm. because I'm I'm doing and not doing the same things as you, and uh, have these kinds of visions for what society should look like. And you play a part, I play a part, we play a part. I can't occupy your space, you can't occupy mine. We can join forces together, that kind of thing. Um, but. Uh, I feel like, you know, I feel like we've seen the closing of the mind. I I think we've seen, I think it's narrowed to the sciences. I think it's narrowed to rigid categories of, of obtaining knowledges pragmatically, but, but, um, there's a loss of meaning and value to it. And there's a loss of judgment. We don't, we make private judgments and our judgments are based on hedonism. What's going to give me the most pleasure. I ain't going to tell you you're wrong because dude, that's going to make it unpleasurable for me. Yeah. And I don't want that. So I'm just gonna let you do, you do you, I'll do me. Right. And, um, I mean, maybe we've derailed, but the point is um, your artwork doesn't exist independent from these realities. Yeah. So if you hunker down tighter into your studio, you can't keep out these facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're never going to let your, see your work impact people because you're not around people to know how to impact them. Mm-hmm. So you say you want an audience, but then the audience is always chasing this high premium on experience. And before you know it, you're consumed up by the galleries, the gallery system, the client, and then you're used up and then you're dry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then everybody else that is making an ordinary way is suffering because they feel alone in their studios or wherever because um, society doesn't necessarily have a, a, a proper value for what it means to be a maker. Yeah. So we're stuck. Or we take on the responsibility of um, figuring out how to change the culture, uh-huh. which is what I'm, you know, what we've been trying to. <laughs> that's yeah. what we're trying to do. Well, I mean, you you know, know. As, as you're talking about this and I'm, I'm thinking through these ideas of ordinary and curious, um, I keep getting this picture of Andy Warhol in my head. I mean, 
prolific is a perfect word for his career. Yeah. Right. I mean, constantly doing stuff, almost nonstop. I mean, the body of work is massive. And it was everything from, you know, things that are, you know, amazing world-class institutions to things that he was selling on a street corner, Mm -hmm. you know, just printer paper. Yeah. Um, So there was an ordinariness to how he made constantly. Right. But there's also curiosity. So it was, well, could I make movies? Yeah. What if I did this process with this medium? Right. What if I use these materials with this thing? Um, and what's fantastic about that is, uh, you know, I think there was a there was a confidence through his career and what he did. Uh, you know, I, I have my own opinions about his movies. I think there may have been an overconfidence in some areas, but um, this is a preference. Uh, but also what happens is uh, at the end of the day, like you start to see other artists that are really magnetically drawn to him. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, there are some people that are just because of the hedonism, just because of the cult of personality yeah. and everything else are yeah. coming to him. But, you know, Warhol and Basquiat, like there's stuff that they're doing. Um, and then Warhol and like any of these other people that just recognize like, oh, this guy's actually an artist. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't escape Andy Warhol outside of those categories of ordinary mm-hmm. and curious mm-hmm. um, in the ways that we're describing them at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so then I'm starting to think about, well, what, what about other artists or designers that I view as like, you know, prolific or important. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, we talked about it before, but, um, you know, Aaron Traplin, uh, the designer, um, very much like he, he is kind of consumed with making as just a part of who he is. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. a, Oh, I'm, I'm Aaron Draplin. And sometimes on the weekends I do some design work. Yep. Like he's, he does that. That's right. what he's part and parcel right. to who he is. Cause it's almost an outflow of his personality. Yeah. And in his studio, we've talked about it before as well, but you know, he has, it's, it's encyclopedic. Mm-hmm. The drawer is full of things because they, he just wants to know about them. Like yeah. he has collections of things because he's curious about their shapes and their sizes and their feels and how these things exist within the world. And both of those things are there yeah. and he's fantastic. And I think, you know, but the, with, with him, especially, um, I know from talking to him, there's a confidence there that doesn't, push into the overconfidence mm-hmm. but there's a confidence there it's a confident contentment it is you're not you're content to the extent that you're not questioning should you be doing this you, you might be questioning what will i do how will right. i do it but the, the the first order question of like should i be doing this has been you just sort of come to terms with it you just kind of have to it's a decision you make on many levels and i'm just saying society wise um it, it's time to just lay that question to rest and let people come to the answer by encountering you in an ordinary way, like in the opposite or complementing to what you're saying, I suppose not so, so much opposites. I'm just thinking about artists that have shown with us that we, we admire that have been on this podcast. Like I know of artists that are really prolific, creative and, uh, substantial makers and they, and they, uh, have MFAs and have taught and, and they are married and they work, you know, they like work at the gap or they like, yeah. they have, um, there's artists here that raise their kids and stay home. Mm-hmm. Um, there's artists that, um, and these are excellent makers. And I think that their work is influenced by those factors, by their encounters with other people. And so uh, that's where I, I want to always, you know, for me, I always want to define success in a wider set of terms because um, I don't need only eccentrics that, li- you know, that show at Christie's. Or, you know, they have their work auctioned off at Christie's that, that are almost, um, almost in, like to where you can't even conversate with it. Like, yeah, you know, not to, not to talk, attack the top end of things, the top tier, if you will, but 
Um, we often love in our society or marvel at the person who has ascended to the top and is utterly accessible. Mm-hmm. We love that paradox. The eminently personal, humble, accessible being who is greater than the rest. Mm-hmm. When that's together, um, that, is, that, is, that is awe-inspiring. We'll settle for the amazing jerk. You know, um, (laughs) you know, so it's like, um, but when the two are together, it's breathtaking and it brings us close and we want to be brought close to awesomeness, if you will, or, Mm -hmm. or things that are, um, beyond us. And in our minds, I think a lot of times society wise, like very few things are beyond us, you know, above us, beyond us, deeper than us. And so, um, you know, that's where I think art suffers. Because the wonder and curiosity for that which is beyond us isn't really there for mm. many folks. Yeah. Um, and so the wonder comes through this strange combination of, of humility and accessibility and seeming transcendence or some, someone who's obtained to levels we haven't. Um, that's very rare. So then the rest of us are remarkable in ways that we don't celebrate. Mm. And so what I'm saying is the ordinary... Uh, approach is to take these things and to make them more visible, more persistent, more enduring. And to say like, you know, I'll tell you what you start, we have talked, I have talked even before you and I, we've in our own tracks, but I for years have talked about the, uh, um, out of my mouth when people will talk to me, I say, I'm a father, I have kids, I'm a professor, I, I teach, I do art. I try to start this art guy for years. That vision was just put together, um, as one unit. And so, um, What's interesting is how many people I've known that have over time just intuitively felt empowered to have kids and, and not be bashful about being married or, you know, having a regular job or mm-hmm. like these things that should be uh, celebrated as but also un, but as a corrective. But but really understood is like, no, this is part and parcel to like being a person and and we shouldn't down that. We only down that stuff is because we have an over prioritization to what I said earlier in this episode. And so then people feel like they're not worthy and it's a joke. It's a load of crap. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a load of crap. It's, it's, and the powers in not in necessarily combating that um, through friction and fighting, but it's just through present, uh, f- uh, asserting your faithful presence in what you do and, and disregarding it. Like, it's kind of like, I'm just going to con- continue to do this until more and more people see it. Yeah. And more and more people come on board, which we've experienced. I mean, a lot of people that feel excited because they're like, I know a lot of artists that have gone through MFAs that are professors, teachers, and now they got kids and they're not treated the same. Mm. Uh, they're demeaned or, you know, not seen as, as uh, sort of valuable to the galleries or to upper, upper level elites or whatever. And so, um, but what's interesting um, is, you know, I made a joke. I said I had a thought on Facebook, I said, celebrities are only celebrities because we make them. So mm-hmm. what happens when everybody stops caring about the elites? Yeah. Right. <laughs> what, you just stop caring. Uh, a lot of power goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I really do. I mean, as naive as it sounds like, I think, I think change is slow. I think it's multi-generational. So when I say we can make a change, I'm willing to, and we have been willing to for some time now lay down a certain, level of our lives in the way of that first bucket to set course on something that has a creates uh, populates more content 
confident, curious makers that actually can build up society, enrich, enliven, um, sustain, and thrive and flourish. And I still think that's very possible uh, coming out of um, even this pandemic. I think it's it's even more possible. It's it's cleared up, I think, and it's time to ask new questions and re-examine, I think, how we understand p- purpose and meaning and existence. I think we need to ask those questions again. You never get back. You never get past those questions. Yeah. You don't. I mean, I'd love, uh, I, I have a couple friends that are designers that I can have those conversations with that they're very happy to just kind of dive into what, like, like why, why do I make things? Mm-hmm. Like, why is that a part of it? Why do I feel off when I'm not? Why do I feel, I don't know, more energetic or a bit more endorphins going through my body when I am, um, you know, and those questions all point to purpose and meaning. They point to, you know, that there's something important about this for society. There's something important about it for me as a person and my family as a relational to me. Um, but that's only two or maybe three people out of yeah. all the designers I know. Yeah, you think it'd be a lot more. You I see, like, what would that look like if that more. would be, or, you know, that's sort of, yeah, gosh, man. That's, I mean, so that's the, I mean, with another talk is economics and kind of the, ebbs and flows of discussions on like a democratic socialism or uh, hyper capitalism. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the problem with that is the over assumption that that by itself changes people. I think it's more than that, but I certainly see how that dichotomy, that, that friction you know, plays out because of a discussion like this a little bit. And, you know, so there's this idea that we all are equal, that um, that's important. Um, and I believe is utterly true. Uh, I think sometimes even more than some people, I think, I think it's true at the most fundamental level of our existence prior to us even existing. So that's how far I'll take it. Um, but the distribution, like, so you can't live as a mob and like postulate as an individual, but live as a mob, which is like what I, what I kind of feel like we, we quickly morph into, you know, echo chambers. And, um, I think we want to do that with, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're not saying that as far as creativity goes in ordinariness, like ordinariness doesn't violate difference or distinctness, right? It's just to talk about frequency and acceptance and expectation as being a normative state of frequency that generally speaking doesn't catch anybody by surprise. Yeah. It's assumed and in, you know, when you assume the value of concrete, you decorate floors and put concrete, you know, you, you do things as a result. So, so uh, a little bit of its luster goes away, but life is built on top of it. Well, I'm saying the same thing about the arts. I'm saying that, you know, and then, and then there's, that gives better context for the ascending moments. You know, so it's not to say that everything is redistributed and it, it all looks the same. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. you, you definitely hear that and it makes me sad. It's like the idea that you could be as educated as you are and around as long as you have been and you could think of three friends. I relate to that. Like yeah. that's a, that's, that is, uh, that should not be the case. Right. It just shouldn't be the case. Um, I mean, it's why we did the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's because f- we kept finding people that are hungry for it, but they're not entering the conversations per se. Yeah. It's scary too. You know, it feels risky. It like, your people like people aren't going to like you if you have if you have thoughts and if you're willing to stand on your convictions you're not going to be liked mm-hmm. people will be threatened by it 
I think for the reasons I said earlier. Yeah. Um, they're unwilling to forego their freedoms as they see it because, like I said, synonymous to freedom is experience and synonymous to experience is happiness. They're not the same thing. But when you make them the same thing, you control everybody to the base level desires you have. Everything boils down to base level desires, which is why I said like the emotional maturity piece. Like that means that the, the, the infant in the room can have as much say as the adult. That sounds arrogant, but I have kids. I'm just saying, you don't want my son making decisions for our household. We will be eating lollipops in excess every day and watching a lot of Scooby-Doo, which doesn't sound terrible until you... Until you're on day three. Until you're on day three. And then you're like, we can't live like this. I got to go to work. No, no, you don't got to go to work, Dad. You don't want that. Yeah, we, we all know that when it comes to kids, but when it comes to kids and when it comes to adults sort of that haven't um, rounded out in this way, oh, man, it's, it's, uh, it's a creativity killer. It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it, because it's, uh, then it becomes, uh, everybody's career becomes a, a strange, like, uh, performance. Yep. And a performance where you don't oh, even know who the audience is. Oh, it hurts. Um, and so, of course, you're going to be, you're going to have nothing but stage fright. Right? Yeah. You're going to have a lack of confidence. Uh, you're not going to want to be curious. You're going to have to be extraordinary, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just... Uh, you know, this is, uh, I, I thought for some dumb reason, I thought that having this conversation today, I would feel like I have a better handle on things, but I feel like in, in good, in good, uh, Ryan and Gareth conversations, now I'm leaving with more questions than I came, but the questions are in a different direction. Yeah. So it's productive. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> you need to tell me what those questions are. I need, I need. Oh gosh. It's a, uh, yeah. We were supposed to close this one down. I think this opened it up. I don't oh know. Oh my gosh. It's, it's yeah. almost like we have to make more episodes. Might have to do it. Um, yeah. yeah. But I think, you know. You know why this happened, right? The conversation changed when we kept going back and forth on meaning. When you kept going, what do you, I, when I said, what do you mean? And then you went back to, <laughs> what do you mean? That literally was like something happened in my brain and I like resituated, like resituated. It's like a lightning rod. I'll just, I'll just have to work. remember from here on out to just never ask you again. Don't never ask that question. I don't need to ask about meaning and purpose. <laughs> and uh, we just avoid all this. We just we, <laughs> we just could, did what we do. One we of us put it in a each nice other. little package with a bow on it if we just don't think about meaning and purpose. Yeah, don't think about meaning and purpose. Just now pleasure. it'll be a, a pathetic, worthless package. <laughs> but it'll be a package all tied up And it'll on the say, camera. don't think about it. Just do it. Yeah. That's Nike. Don't think about it. Just do it. <laughs> That's right. There you go. Man. That's powerful. Uh, it is. By the way, that's powerful. What, do, what is Nike saying? Oh, it's a whole other discussion. But it's there. What are they telling you to do? Don't think about it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've been living in that for so long that now we don't know how to think. Just saying. Yeah. Oh, it hurts. But we're suffering because mm-hmm. we need all the buckets full. We need we the do. buckets tempered. And then, we, you know, moderation is a real blessing. It is. <laughs> it can be really great. I mean, I'm experiencing that right now. There are things that... I did not realize were wearing me down the way they were. Totally. And now that they're not there, mm-hmm. I shocking. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I'm with you. It's shock. I don't mean that sarcastically. I'm like, it's shocking. You're like, oh, I had no idea how much this was tearing me down. Because I thought I was pretty. I thought I had a handle on things pretty yeah. well. Yeah. But uh, no. I mean, I didn't think you did, but I never would. <laughs> I didn't have any courage to tell you that. <laughs> was it all the hair that had fallen out on that yeah. one side of my head? Listen, stress? I've gained like 40 pounds over this break, so I can't even button my <laughs> pants anymore. I'm I'm free falling right now. So. I mean, yeah. He's just got to, he's just got to. I yeah. definitely got a handle. They're hey. like love handles. <laughs> El Dudorino, man. El Dudorino. Just get you some pajama pants and a robe. A robe. I've been wearing the robe around the house. Go. That's startling. <laughs> I'm wearing a robe right now. I mean, I even have to like, you know. Well, it's like, uh, it's like your opinion, man. Yeah. It's a rug. 
<laughs> holds the room, ties the room together. <laughs> well, and I think on that big Lebowski comment, I yep. think that kind of wraps this up. For yeah, me. I think this is a good, a good uh, stopping point. I think we need to take a breather. Yeah, oh. definitely. My, my my brain has to. My brain actually hurts right has now. Has to retract a little yeah. bit because of the the three thousand questions I have that we didn't get into. Write them down. Um, yeah. Um, send but, it to me in slow doses. That's right. I'll send you three questions I'll, I'll today send you, for the next two years. I'll send, we'll just do question exchanges with each other. And then we'll, no we'll see where we... Yeah, no answers. All questions, no answers. Gareth, I got some questions for you. <laughs> cool. Just just let me hear them. But three of my <laughs> questions are about how, how, how you were managing to just foster the gloriousness of your mustache. And then the rest are on, on this conversation. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of like... Uh, who was it? The the Sun King of France was that Louis the Fourteenth, mm-hmm. where he felt everybody just basked in the glow of him. Yeah, that's my mustache. <sighs> that's a great picture. It Thank is. you for that. No problem. Yeah. Um, that's fodder for your next next yeah. series of paintings. And on that note. <laughs> thank you as always for listening. We yeah. always appreciate your support folks dropping quotes. And, um, sometimes we're kind of shocked because it's like, did we say that? Yeah. Um, seriously, it's got, but can't, can't tell you enough how encouraging it is, uh, mm-hmm. to get feedback and support. We, I, you know, we don't ask much, but you know, if you would do, it really means something to share the podcast with folks. Um, definitely please, please do. If you will give us a shout out, write us a review on, you know, iTunes, like, we love to get the word out. We are in a unique spot where with this virus, there's things that are at stake uh, as far as, you know, the space we're in now, we may, we may lose this space. And so, um, all we worked for last year is at risk. And so, um, your support, you know, we, we have a few, uh, uh, supporters on Patreon that we're ever thankful for. Mm -hmm. You're feeling motivated or you have the resources to support us on Patreon, or you know of folks um, and you advocate and you, you like, you know, kind of like what we're doing. Like we're not getting paid to do it. Like we really are doing this cause we, we care. Yeah. Um, so um, I won't ask this much, but I'm just putting it out there for y'all to think about and we're just thankful for you. So we'll, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks. You've been listening to Shaco art speak, a production of Shaco art space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco